Thank you, Lord. Might seem strange. I can hear Brother Hannah Walt back there repeating the same thing I'm saying. He may have said it first, but we're thanking the Lord. Might seem like a strange thing to thank the Lord when you're appealing to him to prepare you to be a sanctuary. But we're thanking him for even allowing us to be able to be a sanctuary. We're thanking him for giving us an understanding that we need to be prepared to be a sanctuary. On some level, we are already a sanctuary. If you've been filled with the Holy Spirit, you have been made a temple of the Holy Ghost. Your bodies are the temples of the Holy Ghost. We're not worshiping any longer in a wood and gold interior tabernacle, as beautiful as that might be. Those sheet and wood boards and that gold overlay that went into creating the interior of the tabernacle, covered by those four thick, heavy coverings, three animal skin coverings, what amounted to, and then covering of linen with those cherubim embroidered on it. Nor are we worshiping in a temple that is made of wood and stone like that that was later created as a more permanent fixture in Jerusalem. We might be worshiping in a sanctuary in the sense that we're gathered together in a house that is the Lord's house. This is a house. I don't know if you've thought about it that way. This building is a house. It's a house for the habitation of the Lord and for the habitation of his people. So this is a sanctuary for certain. But you are the real sanctuaries. And when we come together as sanctuaries, we make this a far more spiritual sanctuary than just a building. It becomes a gathering place for the sanctuaries that are each one of us. So thank you, Lord, for preparing us. He's already, as I started saying, I don't think the author of that song made a mistake in his lyrics there, but God has already prepared us to be a sanctuary if we're filled with the Holy Ghost, but he's preparing us right now to be the right kind of sanctuary. There's a difference between those two things. He has to repair you to be a sanctuary by cleansing you from your past life. If you came to him in the condition you were in before you were saved, before you, through faith and repentance, had your sins washed away, You would not be something that he could use as a sanctuary. He wouldn't invest his spirit in your life. He had to first cleanse you from your past sins. He had to wash you in the blood of the lamb. You know, every year, it wasn't this time of year, by the way, but every year in the fall, when probably near the time that Jesus probably would have been born in terms of his actual birth date, the day of atonement came on the 10th day of the seventh month of the Jewish calendar, which is closer to our time of September or October in our calendar. But on the 10th day of the seventh month of the Jewish calendar, the Day of Atonement occurred. One of the things they did on the Day of Atonement is they took the blood of those sacrifices and brought them all the way in. That normally was not what was done. Brought them all the way inside the tabernacle, inside the temple. Usually all that shedding of blood and the application of the blood was all done on the outside, out in the courtyard. They sacrificed them in the courtyard, but they brought that blood into the holy place, whether the temple or the tabernacle. And they opened up the door. It wasn't a door in our sense of the word, but they opened up the veil, the curtain between the holy and the holiest place. Uh, Only the high priest was able to do this. Only the high priest had the function, the office that allowed him to have the authority to do this. God had put him in that position. You couldn't just have anyone doing that. It couldn't just be any priest. When Aaron was alive, it realistically would not have been any of his four sons that would have been doing that particular work, which might be part of the issue. You see later, when they came into the tabernacle and two of them lost their lives for offering strange fire before the Lord. 
I think there's a lot more to it than that. I think the state they were in, and I can give you a lot more details about that in a Bible study, I think the estate mentally and even physically that they might have been in when they went in there was not proper in terms of how they should have been entering into the presence of the Lord. Maybe they went in there with the wrong motives. Maybe they went in there at the wrong time that God hadn't designed them to come in there at that time. But regardless of that, if you read the story of what happened with Nadab and Abihu when they came in and were killed and had to be drugged back out because they died inside the holy place, which is pretty horrible, you realize right after that, God said you're not to drink wine or strong drink when you're coming into his presence, right in the same context, which means they might have gone in there drunk or inebriated. Who knows what state of mind or spirit they were in and disrespected the holy things of God. God in heaven forbid. But it shows you how serious God is about His holy things. You've got to be in the right state of mind. You've got to be able to think clearly enough if you're going to be a child of God to make the right choices and decisions. And anything that would cause you to disrespect God by having your senses cauterized or your physical state affected in a way where you could be chaffy towards God or towards His work is a dangerous thing. So they went into a physical sanctuary, didn't come back out. But not all of Aaron's sons were necessarily supposed to do what happened on the Day of Atonement while Aaron was alive. He was the high priest. They were priests that operated under him. They were what you might call assistant high priest, if you want to use that term. They didn't use it in the Bible. We don't see the term assistant pastor or assistant prophet. Couldn't that be something? An assistant prophet. He just prophesies part-time. That's not true. Every prophet only prophesied part-time. You go see your Bible, see if any prophet was prophesying nonstop. Here we're studying the book of Haggai on Friday nights. We'll get back to that here in the near future. Some of those prophets only prophesied just a couple months of their entire life that's recorded in the Bible. Haggai prophesied for just a couple of months out of his entire lifespan, and he was still considered a great prophet. So it isn't how often you prophesy or that you're always getting some insights from God. It's that you prophesy, and it's certain that God's the one that gave you the prophecy that makes you a prophet. But only the high priest could go in there on the Day of Atonement. And on the Day of Atonement, one of the things that he did is took the blood. As I said, very unusual. Not something that normally happened. Took the blood into the interior of the temple or the tabernacle and he sprinkled it seven times on and before and upon the Ark of the Covenant after that veil was opened. And they even applied, it looks like, there's some debate about this, but I'm pretty certain this is what it's referring to. Looks like they even applied the blood to the horns of the golden altar out in the holy place to purify that operation. And the blood was applied to different things on the Day of Atonement that were associated with the tabernacle and the temple. The reason for that was to make sure they were purified themselves. Not just the priest was purified, he had to be, but all the pieces and parts of the tabernacle had to be metaphorically or spiritually speaking under the blood. They had to be purified, they had to be cleansed. That's what you and I have to be before God can use us as some part of His temple and tabernacle in a corporate sense. We have to have the blood applied to us. We've got to be cleansed and purified, made ready to be a tabernacle for the Most High God, made ready to be a living temple. said, your body, as I quoted, that's from the New Testament, are temples of the Holy Ghost. That's why we have to be careful what we do with our bodies, what we do with the mouths that are set right in the front of our bodies that tend to be our worst enemies most of the time. Most times, if we kept a zipper on our lipper before we let certain things out of our mouth, we'd be a little bit safer. But our body can be a danger to us in a lot of ways. Things we put into our body will pollute our body if we're not careful. The things we put into our mind, not just physically, but things you put into your heart, what things you put into your mind, things you expose yourself to. 
can cause you to be polluted in the eyes of God. And you're going to have to have that dealt with in order to be prepared to be a sanctuary. You had to have it dealt with before you were prepared to be a sanctuary the first time, didn't you? Well, if you know what you went through, if you actually had a genuine conversion experience, you know you had to be dealt with in order to be a sanctuary. What happened with the precious Samaritans when Philip went up and preached to them? In the 8th chapter of Acts, Philip went up to Samaria to preach to the Samaritans, and the Word of God took root in their hearts. The incorruptible seed of the Word of God took root in the hearts of the Samaritans. That's the first step on the path of the process the Lord wants to take you through, which will result eventually in the perfection He's seeking, the fullness of spiritual maturity He's looking for. First step is the, root of, the Word of God has to take root in the soil of your heart. That's what he talked about in Matthew 13, wasn't it? When he said, a sower went forth to sow. And he talked about those four different types of seed. Not seed, there's not four different types of seed. Well, there's, there might be. There's one seed there, but there's four different types of soil. And those different types of soil are ground, if you want to be more accurate. Some of them easily receive the seed. A good soft-turned soil easily receives the seed. If you've had the soil of your heart broken up, which is one of the statements a couple times said in the Old Testament, have your fallow ground broken up, you know, the soil of our heart gets kind of crusty. Maybe it's never been broken up and you need to have it broken up before God's seed can be planted in your heart. You ever notice that quite often when people first come to the Lord, it's because they went through a series of experiences that caused their heart to be broken or something to happen to them that caused them to want to turn to the Lord? It's the same thing, not always in your initial conversion experience, but same thing very often if you backslide. What will cause you to come back to the Lord if you left the Lord is God will take you through a series of experiences that are hurtful experiences. I mean, they might be emotionally hurtful. They might even be physically hurtful. And it breaks your heart. And it causes you to go seeking the only one who can mend that damage that's been done to your heart. You know what he's doing when he allows that to happen to you? He's breaking up the fallow ground because your heart's become fallow. It's not going to accept the seed. If he puts the seed of his word into your heart, the seed of the word of God into your heart, you won't readily accept it. It'll be like stony ground or thorny ground or other things that just don't readily accept the seed of the word of God or they crowd it out. You know, there's too many other things. One thing about thorny ground is it can crowd out. There's too much that overshadows the seed, you know, too many other issues. We need our fallow ground broken up, as it says in Jeremiah. Is that 4.3? Thus saith the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, break up your fallow ground. And notice what he says. And sow not among thorns. Have you ever connected that verse to Matthew 13? You should. In your Bible, if you've got a Bible, let you write in the margins, which I always encourage anybody that's getting a new Bible to do that. Find a Bible that lets you write in the margins. I have found some that are the best I've found yet. I'll find a page where I haven't written much in the margins. Well, that's kind of hard to do, isn't it? And you see that there's wide open margins on each side of... I haven't even copied all my notes of this one yet, Brother Terry, but there's wide open margins on each side of the text of the Bible so that if you want to write something in there and what you ought to write in there beside where it talks about the thorny ground and the stony ground in Matthew 13, write in the side of your margin. If it's not array there, if you don't have a Bible that has cross references that are good enough to include it, write in there Jeremiah 4.3 because that fallow ground... And thorns that they're sowing among are the very two things that Jesus is talking about are the four types of ground in Matthew 13. So the incorruptible seed of the Word of God takes root in your heart. And even before the Spirit fills you in any true sense, the Word of God is already bringing life to you. It's the seed, and the seed of the Word of God is alive, isn't it? 
Anybody think the seed of the Word of God is dead? You know, you've got to hear the Word of God before you ever receive the Holy Spirit. But if you hear the Word of God and it takes root in your heart, there's already some measure of life in you even before you get the Holy Spirit. It's not enough life to bring you to full maturity, though. You need the Holy Spirit for that. But the seed of the Word of God that Peter said was the incorruptible seed of the Word of God that liveth and abideth forever, once it takes root in your heart, it will start making changes. You know what it's doing? Sometimes this happens very fast. It depends on how malleable you are, how flexible you are, how pliable you are. When the seed of the Word of God takes root in your heart, the Word of God starts moving around the furniture in your house. It starts moving things out that don't belong there. At least it will if you pay attention to it. You'll hear the Word of God preach. You can't do this anymore. That's wrong. Can't do it. Got to get that out of your life. That attitude or that action has to be changed. And then you say, I'm not going to do that anymore, Lord. And you take it out of your house, so to speak. You know what you can do is you're listening to the Word of God and you're responding to it in a positive way by submitting to its requirements. Even before you've received the Holy Spirit, you're making room for the Spirit to come and abide inside your home because you're moving things out that it will feel unwelcome being in the presence of those things. So the Word of God is an incorruptible seed, starts growing in your heart. It starts adjusting your life to make it ready for the Holy Ghost. Some people have already had the Word of God affect them so deeply in a very short period of time that all they have to do is be exposed to the Spirit. It just rushes into their life. Their life is already so open to God. That's what you see happen two chapters later in the book of Acts. What happens two chapters later? The household of Cornelius were filled with the Holy Ghost, weren't they? The end of that 10th chapter of Acts, after Peter preached his message, in the midst, it wasn't after, he didn't even get to finish it from what I read there. It looks like he was right in the middle of preaching it and didn't even really get to the climax of the message yet, to really presenting Christ to them in any kind of full sense. But their hearts had already been prepared. They'd been hearing things that had been taught by those who had been teaching the Old Testament prior to that, telling them about God, telling them about the hope of salvation and other things that they might have thought in their hearts, isn't that a glorious thing? I wonder if God would let us be a part of that. And their hearts were so wide open that all that it took was a man of God under a spiritual anointing who didn't even lay his hands on them. You know, a lot of times we lay hands on people praying they'll receive the Holy Spirit. And that's biblical. I can give you reasons for that. That's a very important thing. If you don't think laying on of hands is an important thing, spiritually and literally in the physical sense, just read Hebrews 6, the second verse. It's one of those four doctrines in that verse that are new covenant doctrines that are critical. Doctrine of laying on of hands, of baptisms, of the resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment that are in that verse. And don't forget the three doctrines in the verse before that, faith and repentance and perfection that are in the verse prior. Must be important to God's operation, laying on of hands. I know some churches don't understand a single thing about laying on of hands. They don't understand its spiritual or its physical application. Thank God we understand both. We might need to know more. Maybe God will show us more. But I believe we understand both. We understand that you can lay hands on somebody without ever physically touching them. You can lay hands on them with your words. You can, believe me. You can lay hands on them in a pretty violent way with your words. I've seen ministers lay hands on people in a way they shouldn't have laid hands on them. They tore somebody up and thrashed them around in a service. But I've also seen men of God under an anointing who had to address a sin that was going on that laid hands on that sin with the words that came right out of their mouth. Those words laid hands on that condition. But you know what's even more precious? Because those are pretty rough deals in the first two. It's when somebody lays hands on you with the Word of God and brings healing and hope 
And after they're done touching you with the Word of God, and just like someone's hand, just reaching out. You ever had somebody touch you and you just felt a good feeling, a warmth come over you? Because you could feel their love through that touch. Maybe they just touched your shoulders, they were walking by. Maybe they put their arm around you and you could just feel the warmth of their love coming out of that touch. When God's Word touches you and you're seeking His Word, you're not needing to be thrashed by it necessarily. You're not needing to be picked up by the hair of the head by His Word because you're doing wrong. But you are seeking to do His Word. Lord, just tell me what to do. Or Lord, I need some help right now. I need some hope. I'm in a dark place in the hand of God through the words of God or through another person or the ministry touches you and gives you that help and that hope. That's a precious thing, isn't it? Peter didn't even have to touch the household of Cornelius. You know, they did, looks like, touch the Samaritans at two chapters earlier. They went and laid hands on them that they might receive the Holy Ghost. That was physically laying hands on them. That is an element of the Scripture. It goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. Who was laying hands on people in the book of Genesis, brethren? Or any of you? Abraham, Abraham was one. Jacob. You see a real unique example of it in Jacob at the end of his life when he laid hands on Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And Joseph didn't understand why he was doing this, but God directed his hands. He put his hands like this instead of reaching out and touching the boys like that. If I was going to pray for a husband and a wife, and we've had this happen many times, prayed for a couple or prayed for a couple of people at one time, you know, in a prayer line, I wouldn't pick, you know, which my favorite hand, you know, I'm right-handed. Let me find my favorite, and I'll put my right hand on their head. That isn't how it works. There's no favorites like that. I would just put one hand on one head and one hand on the other head. But Israel, Jacob, he crossed his arms when he prayed for Ephraim and Manasseh. He put his hand on the younger one. I'm sure Joseph lined him up so that the older would be right here, right where his right hand would go to, and the younger would be right here. Give him the double portion as the firstborn. That's what that had to do with, the right hand. He switched his arms around and put his right hand on the younger son. He said that God was going to bless the younger son even more mightily than the older brother, which God does quite often if you pay attention to the Scripture. Quite often he did that in their lineage. That shouldn't have surprised Joseph. Joseph was one of the most blessed of all the children of Israel, and he was one of the youngest of all of them. He was the next of the youngest, wasn't he? Only Benjamin was younger than Joseph. So astonishing how God operates, the different ways he does things. But Peter came to the house of Cornelius in Acts 10, and he laid his hands on them with the word of God, even though he didn't touch them like he had when he and John went up to Samaria two chapters earlier. They laid hands on the Samaritans. I'll come back to that in a minute. They laid their hands physically on the Samaritans in Acts 8. But in Acts 10, there's no description of Peter physically touching the house of Cornelius at all. In fact, it doesn't even look like he was complete with his message. Like I said, it would have only taken, at the most, even talking slow, just a minute or two to preach the message Peter preached. It's not a very long message, but the household of Cornelius, their hearts were already prepared. They probably had already been singing that song, even though it hadn't been written yet. Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary, pure and holy, tried and true. Now, I don't know if they ever thought they could be a sanctuary like the Jews were because they were Gentiles. They probably thought at most, maybe God will give us some measure, some little piece of the blessing. You know, going all the way back to Noah's sons, when they had that blessing that was given over them, it said that Japheth would dwell in the tents of Shem. Shem was the son through whom the line of the patriarchs, the Hebrew patriarchs came. He was the one who was the ancestor of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but Japheth was not. Japheth was the ancestor of those like the Greeks and others that were Gentile nations. 
But there was a prophecy made that Japheth would dwell in the tents of Shem, meaning one day he'd be able to inherit the very thing that Shem was going to inherit, be a part of that covering that God had over that line. They didn't know what all that meant at that time. Probably just thought he'll get some blessing along with his brother, but it was so much richer than that. It was a hint that the Gentiles would be included. Maybe God had given the house of Cuneus an insight into some of those precious statements about the Gentiles being able to be blessed by the Jews. And here's a Jewish man, one of the disciples of Jesus, who I am certain they had heard about. Everybody in that area had heard about Jesus at that point. And here he is preaching this message to them. They wanted to hear more about Jesus, and their hearts were already open. They had already been prepared to be a sanctuary of God's Spirit. And very little, I want you to think about how little, just read Peter's message. Very little of the Word of God had to be planted before the Spirit came rushing into those individuals and filled them. They were filled with the Holy Spirit with almost none of Peter's planting of any of the seed of the Word of God. Read what he said. He didn't say much doctrinally, but something had already prepared their hearts. They had already heard the Word of God in other contexts and things and had already opened their hearts to it. The household of Cornelius received that in a very unique way. They didn't have to be prepared for very long. They didn't have to go through a lengthy process. The disciples went through a process of about 40 days of preparation after Jesus resurrected. 40, 50 days of preparation after he resurrected and about 10 days after he returned to heaven before they were filled with the Holy Ghost. It shows how precious that is that the very disciples that walked with Jesus for three and a half years, it took 10 days of them being prepared after he left before they were ready for the day of Pentecost and all in one place in one accord. But it looks like the house of Cornelius was there the moment Peter walked in the door. Just think about that. They were already ready. Just that open and ready. No long preparation period that had to be given to them. Okay, for 10 days, I want you all praying. I'll come back. I gave you the message. Now for 10 days, pray and I'll come back. Jesus basically did that for three and a half years. Gave the message to his disciples. Then when he left for go back to the Father, he said, Now for 10 days, tarry at Jerusalem until the promise of the Father come. You know, he, Peter didn't have to do that with the house of Cornelius. He didn't have to say, now, I want you to ruminate on, he didn't even get to finish his message. I want you to ruminate on what I've told you about Jesus, and I'll be back in 10 days to see what happens. He didn't even get to finish his message. God had exercised so much mercy, he just poured out the Holy Ghost. In the case of the Samaritans, two chapters earlier, first, their hearts were prepared by the incorruptible seed of the Word of God. That precious young man, I think all those deacons, if you want to call them deacons, that's where Jews for them. All those deacons in the sixth chapter of Acts, which Philip and Stephen were two of those seven deacons, I think all of those deacons were young men probably. You remember part of the reason the apostles, who were young men themselves, by the way, they weren't elderly at this point. They were probably in their 30s at the most. Part of the reason that the disciples selected out those men was they wanted people with youth, I think, and energy and the ability to do a lot of physical labor because they felt a responsibility for the precious saints who were the shut-ins and the widows and the orphans and others, and ones that needed help, but they just knew that the burden of the ministry would not allow them to have the time they needed to be able to do that work. So they were praying, God, will you give us some men that can help with this work so that we don't feel the burden of it? I mean, you should feel a spiritual burden, but so we don't have a burden towards that that will cause us to shirk our other responsibilities because who wouldn't want to help the people of God? Give us some men that can help with some of these areas where we don't have the time or strength to be able to do all of this and the other things you've called us to do. And God gave them to begin with those seven men that, as I said, I don't think any of them were elderly men. I think they were fairly young men. Stephen certainly was a very young man. Philip was probably a very young man. 
I can't imagine more than in their 20s. And Philip went up to Samaria and opened up the Samaritans of the gospel. They had already been opened up. You know that, right? You know the Samaritans had already heard some of the gospel before Philip ever got there? How's that? From Jesus himself, Brother Kevin told you. He told the woman at the well, didn't he? She was a Samaritan woman. He gave her some insights, and she went and wanted to get everybody around there and tell them about this man that she'd met who told her he could give her, just think about this for a minute, he could give her living water that she'd never thirst again. You realize Jesus was prophesying something that the very thing that's going to happen in Acts 8. He told her, I can give you living water. He didn't give her any right then because it wasn't time yet to give that water. He did give her some of the incorruptible seed of the Word of God, which she spread around, it sounds like, to some of the neighbors and folks in town, and laid the groundwork for what would happen when Philip came up there. Whether Philip realized it or not, the fallow ground of Samaria had already begun to have a crack in it. Jesus split that ground with the words that he gave to that precious lady at the well. And the ground of Samaria, which was very fallow ground, if you know anything about the Samaritans, began to have a crack in it. So that when Philip showed up, there was somewhere he could put his spiritual crowbar in to pull open the ground and start breaking it up and sowing the seed of the Word of God. And he sowed the seed of the Word of God in the hearts of the Samaritans, and they were on fire. Some of them in a genuine way, some of them in a fake way. You know, you can have people that are fake about their religion. There was some individual there who, unfortunately, did not have the right spirit, didn't really receive the message, but some did. The ones that received the message, it said of them, and this is one of these things that most people seem to entirely miss when they're studying the doctrine of the Spirit and how the Spirit operates in terms of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the nature of how it works and when it comes into the life of an individual. It stupefies me how many theologians have just walked right past this verse without even letting it register. The Samaritans were saved. They were converted So much so that Philip was willing to baptize them in water. You don't baptize someone in water if they haven't been genuinely converted because you're getting out of order. You don't baptize someone that hasn't been converted. And then to send word back to Jerusalem. We need some of the the great men of God, some of the leaders, some of the apostles. He was a leader, but he felt like this is going to take somebody with a little bit higher level of authority than I have. And you know why Philip might have thought that? I wonder if you've ever reasoned it out. There's a lot of reasons. He might have thought, I'm a pretty young man. I've already done some pretty big things here, and I don't want to be thinking anyone thinks I'm going to take credit. I'm the apostle of the Samaritans. You know, I'm not even an apostle. Who knows what someone might think? I want to go get somebody. What an act of humility. Bigger than me. Maybe he might have thought, well, they heard me preach the Word of God, and look what they did. Samaritans right and left coming out. Could have stoked your ambitions and ego and pride. I baptized them, you know, which is an act of authority, you know. If you're allowing someone to baptize you, on a level, whether conscious or unconscious, you are recognizing their authority to do it. That's part of why we understand what we do about baptizing in the name of Jesus. Part of baptizing in His name is baptizing under His authority. If you're not somebody who's operating in His authority, if He hasn't put a calling on your life, you're not somebody who He's given His authority to, you don't have any business baptizing people. And if people are being baptized by you, they should recognize before they are baptized, this is a man of God who God has placed his authority on. That gives him the authority to be able to hold this office that he's holding. You'll find, by the way, not one time in the Bible anybody but one of that ministry of the church baptized somebody. So Philip, who was an evangelist, that's one of the five offices of ministry, you know. It's not an apostle, it's not on the level of an apostle, but it's a very powerful man of God. God puts his anointing on an evangelist 
You're talking about a man that went into Samaria who has great deep prejudice against the Jews, and the Jews had great deep prejudice against them, and went in there with the Word of God, having only had that one crack of the ground opened up by Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well, and he went in there and broke that ground open and started sowing the seed of the Word of God and started getting a crop produced out of that. People responding to the Word of God, bless His holy name, saints. Isn't that a precious thing when God anoints His Word? Even despite the environment that it was, it looked like it wouldn't be ready for the Word of God. But it was ready. All Jesus had to do was do what He did, and it was going to be ready for those men of God under that anointing to open it up. So Philip goes there, and Philip preaches that message. They respond in a large number to Philip's message, which had to be an incredibly encouraging thing. And Philip then baptizes them, which is an act, as I said, of authority that I feel like I have the right to baptize them. That's a pretty big statement for a young man, especially. But he was right. He was right. But it shows you his humility that Philip said, now we need to go get one of the apostles because this is a job that I don't feel like I'm big enough to do or I should be trying to take the credit for. Safety and all those other things that come into it. And then Peter and John came up to Samaria. And notice, before Peter and John ever came, the Samaritans had already accepted Christ, had already been baptized in water. Peter and John came up and laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. They did not receive the Holy Spirit prior to Peter and John coming up and laying hands on them. That's when they received the Holy Spirit. Said there's multiple reasons why Philip might have done what he did. One reason is you realize there really wasn't a precedent for bringing Gentiles into the church in the way you'll see two chapters later. Even Peter going to the household of Cornelius was somewhat controversial because five chapters after that in the Council of Jerusalem, Peter's still explaining what God did and what it was about when he went to the household of Cornelius. And that was several years later. It's still a controversial issue. Well, how are the Gentiles going to be dealt with? So you better believe when Philip started preaching to the Samaritans who were half Jew and half Gentile, half Hebrew and half Gentile, he probably thought this is a controversial thing. I don't know how much they can be involved. I don't know what the next step might be for them. I don't know what God is going to do with the Samaritans. They're not pure-blood Hebrews. So I think that was another safety factor, to use your word, Brother Kosa. And then a multitude of counselors, he asked that Peter and John would come. And Peter and John came, and I'm going to tell you what I think happened there. They just put it in God's hands. I'm sure it was a mystery to Peter and John that the Samaritans were responding like this. But what I appreciate about Peter and John, they didn't say, oh, my Lord, we can't touch them. They're unclean. They knew they weren't unclean. You know why? God had prepared them to be a sanctuary when they received the word of Philip's preaching. When they received the word of Philip's preaching, they were baptized in water. Those were the steps that he was taking to prepare the Samaritans to be a sanctuary for his spirit. And so after he did so, then Peter and John. Shows you how much confidence they had in Philip, by the way. Philip tells them, here's what happened. I preached the word of God. They genuinely were converted, except for at least one of them, Simon the sorcerer. They genuinely were converted, and so much so, I baptized them in water. Now it's in your hands. And they apparently had enough confidence in Philip and enough confidence in what they'd seen in the Samaritans that they were willing to lay their hands on the Samaritans. That might have been an uncomfortable thing. Up to that point, as I said, there hadn't been any clear statement that they had been bringing the Gentiles into the church. It would have been pretty much the Jews up to this point, those of Israelite blood stuck. So they laid their hands on those Samaritans, and I think they were putting those Samaritans. Sometimes this is all we're doing when we're laying hands on somebody. We're putting them in the hands of God. 
There's times that I have precious saints come up here that I lay my hands on or our other brethren lay their hands on to pray for their sicknesses or pray for some condition they're dealing with, some distress they're in. Perhaps even someone standing, this happens very regularly in this assembly. And I appreciate this. It shows the love of the people for one another. Someone's standing in for someone else. They come up and say, I want to get prayed for for so-and-so. I want to stand here and get prayed for on the behalf of so-and-so that God would have mercy on them or would touch them or would heal them or whatever the case might be. Sometimes when we're laying hands on people, it isn't that God just gives us some great surge of power that rushes through us and we think, let me hurry up and get over there because I can feel the Spirit all over me and I know if I touch them, it'll heal them or it'll do this work in their life that needs to be done. Sometimes that happens. And usually there's a pretty dramatic effect when it happens. I've had times that I have felt to go walk over and lay hands on somebody and the power of God was running through me so strong, I could hardly even walk over to get to them. And when I touched them, I could feel it just course down through my arm and out of my hand and they just went back under the Spirit. They might have fallen down and I didn't hit them. I didn't blow on them or do any other nonsense either. I just barely touched them. Sometimes I didn't get my hand to them before it happened. This shows you something, by the way. Sometimes they weren't even paying attention to me. They didn't have their eyes open. They didn't know I was there. There can be some of those things worked up. I just gave you a couple examples for a reason. Blowing on people and other nonsense where somebody works the whole crowd up and then does things to cause them to respond in a certain way. It's almost like group hypnosis. Listen, what's precious to me is there's times somebody certainly wasn't looking for that. And there's been times people had their eyes closed and had no idea I was even standing there. That I felt the Spirit of God and just reached out toward them and the power of God fell on that person. But that is not what I expect all the time. You know, a lot of the times what is going on, we're laying hands on people. If you don't feel a strong surge of the Spirit when you're laying hands on someone, brethren, we are just putting them in God's hands. Because it's not our hands anyway. You hear that, man? I know you know that. But it's not our hands anyway. If I lay my hand on somebody to pray for them, it's not my hand that means anything. This is just a piece of flesh and bone. That's all I am. But if God will have an honor for my office or for the person being prayed for or loves his people enough to use a vessel, whatever vessel it might be, that reaches out in love to pray for you, that hand can be just like the hand of God touching you, even though it's just a human hand. But as I said many times when we're laying hands on people, if the Spirit of God doesn't come over us in a mighty way or we don't feel some great sign from the Lord or the people don't feel that, a lot of times we're laying hands on to put them in God's hand. And saying, God, will you let your hand be upon this person? Will you please heal them? Not because my hand's touching them, but because we're signifying through that act that we're putting them in your hands. That we know you can accomplish something. We know your hand can heal them. Your hand can lift them up. So some things we do are almost figurative in their almost ritual expression. That's what water baptism is. That's what laying on of hands is. They are almost ritual type of, I don't want you to get carried away with that word, but they're almost ritual type of, types of expressions where the expression itself doesn't mean anything. It's not a magic word, you know. That's the problem with Simon, the sorcerer I mentioned. He saw something happen when the Samaritans got the Holy Spirit, which means it couldn't have just been some quiet, thank you for praying for me, I know I got the Holy Spirit now. Something happened that was so outwardly obvious in whatever response or condition occurred, that Simon the sorcerer went to Peter and John, which was a big mistake. He got rebuked as bad as anyone's ever gotten rebuked by Peter, and Peter was a rebuking individual. He got rebuked by Peter for being in the gall of bitterness. If you understand what that's saying, that's pretty rough language. Peter basically told him, who in the world do you think you are? Let your money perish with thee. 
Paul said, said something similar to that that I'm quoting. But Peter said, let your money perish with you. How dare you offer money for the gift of God? A carnal individual just wanting it for attention or whatever else. But whatever happened when Peter and John laid their hands on the Samaritans was something that Simon saw. And when Simon saw it, it must have been something so visible and so tangible that he thought, I sure would like to have that happen when I just touch people with my hand. They'd really think I was, remember, he's called Simon the Sorcerer. They'd really think I'd have some magic ability if I could do whatever happened when... So what happened? I'd cause you to think. Something happened. So he didn't get a good response. Simon the sorcerer's reason for wanting that was the wrong reason. He wanted that because he said, this is just what it is. It's a ritual type of thing. All that somebody has to do is reach out and touch their hand and something happens when that happens. You know, there are some things we do that are just physical things that we do that engage our heart. That's part of what water baptism is about. It's not that the water does anything for you or going in or out of it does anything for you. It's that your heart is engaged and God responds to you acting out what your heart is communicating. Lord, I know that I have been a sinner and I was lost, but you reached down into the sea of mankind and you lifted me up and put my feet on the solid rock. And because I know you've done that, I want to go through this process that you're asking me to go through to declare that you've done that. And the Holy Spirit is similar in that the reason it quite often involves laying on of hands is because what's happening is somebody is saying, I want this person to be under the hand of God. I want them to be under the covering of God. I want to impart something to them. You realize two different times Paul talked to Timothy about how a certain gift had been imparted into his life spiritually by the laying on of hands. One time he said, by the laying on of my hands. There was a gift that was imparted to you, a spiritual gift, by the laying on of my hands. Another time he said, by the laying on of the hands of the presbytery, which just means the elders of the church, the ministerial brethren in that church, had laid their hands on Timothy and something had happened in Timothy's life. It isn't that they gave him something out of their lives and they lost it, you know, like they had an office of the ministry and they laid their hands on him. Sometimes you'll see something similar to that in the Bible, not that they lost it, but that it came to its conclusion. When you see the very end of the life of Elijah and the events that occurred at the end of the life of Elijah, you see something similar to the idea of laying on of hands. When Elijah was getting ready to be caught up into the heavens in that chariot of fire and Elisha was following him all around the countryside, he would not leave his side. He knew something was going to happen. He knew it was the end. I wonder if God just told him in his heart or if some of the things Elijah had told him prepared him for it. But Elijah was just almost acting like it just another day. I'm going making my rounds, you know, doing some things I need to do. But Elisha was not going to be separated from his mentor. He followed Elijah step for step. Elijah walks over and he did. <laughs> You'd have to wonder what's going on that this needs to happen. That he walks over there with his mantle, you know, crosses through the Jordan. Other things happened with that mantle that Elisha used. Sons of the prophets, who were some of the men that were part of that school of prophecy, so to speak, were watching and paying attention. Elisha's following him everywhere. And Elijah almost did like Naomi, it sounds like, in some of his actions, almost like, go ahead, go home, you know. Elisha was not going to leave him. Then finally, when he prayed that, and you could say that he was putting his hands on him by this, he prayed that before you go, let the Lord put a double portion of your anointing, your calling, your office on me. Now, I want you to think about that. That might sound like a very ambitious statement or maybe a very egotistical statement, but all you have to do is read the story of Elisha and you'll find out that couldn't have been right. But I'll tell you why it wasn't an egotistical or ambitious statement. 
It is a big statement to say, if there's been a mighty man of God that has preceded you, somebody with a great gift, and you're following in his footsteps in some capacity, whether taking on his responsibility or some part of his responsibility, for you to say, Lord, let me have double what he had in terms of authority and anointing, that's a pretty big statement, wouldn't you think? That sounds like almost too big of a statement. But you realize Elisha had walked beside Elijah. He knew the suffering Elijah went through. He knew the cost of the ministry. Anybody that spends a close amount of time with someone that's a true man of God will know the cost of the ministry. It's one of the things that is one of the best methods of preparation for the next generation, whether it's the next generation in terms of age or just in terms of God putting another man in a position or in a position in the future, might even be an older man. One of the best methods of preparation is to be close to a man of God. If you feel a calling that God is going to use you in some kind of a way as a man of God, everybody's a man as a man of God if they're God's child, but I'm talking about somebody in a ministerial work of some kind. The best thing you can do is spend a lot of time with a true man of God. Find a true man of God. Make sure it is a true man of God or you'll learn things you don't need to learn. You'll pick up habits you don't need to pick up. And I've watched people follow somebody that was a man of God who maybe had some very bad habits that they picked up some of those habits in terms of the way they handle people and other things. Find somebody that's a man of God who loves God's people. Somebody who loves the sheep, who isn't trotting their pastor with his dirty feet, which is something you'll see in Jeremiah. But somebody who wants to keep his feet clean when he's walking in the pasture of God's flock, who wants to make sure he's dealing with them in the right way, isn't abusive of the sheep, but loves the sheep. Someone that's self-sacrificial, saints. Always look for a man that's self-sacrificial if you're going to follow him. Because you will have to follow some people. It isn't just following Christ. Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. God will put leaders in your life, but make sure they're self-sacrificial. If they're not self-sacrificial, they probably are not filling their calling in the way they should. Elisha had seen Elijah go through some brutal things. You realize he was called to the ministry directly after Elijah went through the process he went through on Mount Carmel, faced by those 850 false prophets. And Ahab, and behind Ahab back home, Jezebel, pulling the strings, you know, who he was so afraid of later in the next chapter. Elisha became his disciple right after that. You know, right after all of Elijah's greatest struggles, his greatest triumph perhaps on Mount Carmel, but then his greatest struggles in the 19th chapter in that fearful state he was in where he even ran out of town, left the north, went all the way to the southern end of Israel, tried to get away as far away as he could from Ahab and Jezebel and the threats that he had received. You realize after he finally got it together, after God talked to him in the way that he did, and he went back to his responsibilities, so to speak, on his way, he came across this young man plowing in the field. And God talked to Elijah's heart, and he said, go over there and throw your mantle on that young man, which that young man knew exactly what that meant. That shows you how spiritually minded some of the people of Israel were. You might have thought, what's this guy throwing his coat on me for? What's the problem with this guy? Throwing his clothes over me. A cloak is his outer cloak, you know, his mantle. He went over there and put his cloak on Elisha. Elisha knew exactly what it meant. He wanted to go back and say goodbye to his parents. He knew exactly what the job was about to be. He had to sacrifice a yoke of oxen, didn't he? He broke up. This is a precious, precious example of burning your bridges behind you. Some bridges you have to burn. That doesn't mean you burn every bridge because sometimes you need to get back over a bridge for reasons. You know, there's somebody you love over there. But there's some bridges. Let me give you an example. There's a lot of bridges between Ohio and Kentucky. If you haven't made the trip, you'll find that out. For those of you, some of you that have traveled that way here lately, you found out that the main one has not been the bridge you could take lately. 
They're doing construction on it. Might be wise because I've been wondering when that bridge was going down at some point. So thank the Lord somebody finally is working on it. There's a main bridge that goes over 71 through Cincinnati and 71 goes right on into 75 and so on into Kentucky. But there are other bridges to get across. Some of those bridges are not safe bridges to go back across. I told you the story of my wife and I coming back from a meeting in Des Moines and how this is a good story to tell, by the way, because it shows you the stupidity of your pastor, which is the best possible way for me to keep humble is to recognize my own stupidity. We're driving back from Des Moines. It'd been a long meeting. It'd been a wonderful meeting. It'd been a long meeting. We had a long trip in front of us. I think that's a good 10, 12 hours if you're just shooting through with all you got in you to go, not making a lot of stops. We're driving back from Des Moines. And as we're crossing over, was that between Iowa and Illinois? Where was it at? Around Joliet. She knows exactly where it was at. She'll never forget. We, I don't even remember the town we were going through. That's how far it's past my mind. My, you know, we don't like to think about our own ignorance too often. We're driving along, and sometimes when I'm driving along a long journey and the folks are all tied up in things, my wife may be, she wasn't this time, she was wide awake. My wife might be asleep beside me in the passenger seat. The kids are back there reading or whatever they're doing. A lot of times I'll put my headphones on. So I don't disturb them, so I can just listen to a book I'm reading or something. I had my headphones on and cruising along in a nice clip. I won't tell you how fast because I don't want you following in my footsteps in that way. Cruising along in a nice clip and got right up to that bridge. I didn't even know I was getting up to a bridge. I wasn't paying any attention to anything but the road in front of me. I wasn't looking that far out. Got up to that bridge and there was a big sign that I didn't see at the sign. I didn't see anything on the sign. I wouldn't look at the sign. I was looking at the road right in front of me, not looking around at the sides. There's a big sign that, a very big billboard from what I looked at later, she made a point when we stopped of pulling it up on Google and making sure I read every line of this billboard. <laughs> she wanted to make sure I understood what I had just done to the family, you know. There was this big billboard that says, such and such bridge coming up, and in big letters, cross at your own risk. It was a big bridge too, and a little small bridge. And it said, all these engineers, and they had all their names on this sign, I mean a lot of them have concluded this bridge could fall at any time. So we would strongly advise not crossing it. I'm sure that really irritated whatever town was responsible for it because they had still had it open. I didn't see that. I just cruised right on over the bridge. And I'm sure every second we were on that bridge, she's over there like this. <laughs> the bridge is going down and he doesn't care, you know. Well, I didn't know. I wasn't looking at the bridge. I wasn't looking at the billboard. Somebody needed to make me aware of that. So Elisha was asking for a double portion. He wasn't egotistical. I'll come back to the point I was making, but he wasn't egotistical about that. He had seen some of the terrible things that his mentor had gone through. And I'm going to tell you what I really think Elisha was asking. It wasn't just let me do even bigger things than my father and the Lord did. That would be egotistical if that was your statement. I want to do bigger things. Well, unless you're just saying, I want God to get more glory out of my life, but even that is almost an insult, wouldn't it be? If you thought, I want God to get more glory out of my life than he got out of yours, what would that be saying? You know what I think he was really saying? I know just how hard this task is. I watched Elijah suffer. I watched. I got called to the ministry right after. I, don't let me forget about the bridges. I want to come back to that. Don't let me forget, Brother Bishop. I want to say something about the bridges. Elisha understood what his mentor had gone through. He'd been with him for years. He understood the price of the ministry. He knew it was, it was not going to be all glory and victories on Mount Carmel because he knew that right before he had been called, that great victory at Mount Carmel had been followed immediately by some life-threatening situations. 
I think what Elisha was really saying is, Lord, I know that if I have the calling that you put on Elijah's life, which I know I have, I'm going to need even more strength than he had to be the kind of man that he was. And God gave him that very thing. And he prayed, will you let the mantle of Elijah fall on me? And as Elijah was being caught up in that chariot of fire into the heavens above, I said that very intentionally the way I just said it, by the way, you realize that mantle fell off of Elijah and fell right down there to Elisha, just like he had asked. And to make sure he had the power of God, you know, that's one of those statements where basically he said, where is the God of Elijah? He wanted to know, is the God of Elijah with me? This mantle fell, and I'm assuming it was God that let it fall to me. And he went over there and struck that mantle on the Jordan River, and the Jordan River opened. Sons of the prophets were seeing that and realizing that God had his hand on another man for that type of position. But when Elisha was called, you won't have to remind me, I just reminded myself. When Elisha was called, he broke up the instruments of his plowing. He broke up that plow and those other instruments that he used to plow the field. Took a yoke of that oxen, and he used the instruments of that plow to light a fire and kindle a fire to burn those sacrifices on as a sign of several things. Not only was he offering up a sacrifice to ask God's help and his favor and his blessing, and maybe even to thank God for calling him. We ought to thank God for calling us. what I said in the beginning of the service here. When we're singing that song, and I heard Brother Hannawalt, I think, back there at the same time I was saying it, saying, thank you, Lord. And I thought how funny it would sound to somebody who doesn't understand the Lord, why we're thanking the Lord for preparing us to be a sanctuary. Well, once you know what that means, you'd be crying out, thank you, Lord. He didn't have to prepare you to be a sanctuary, saints. He didn't have to use you at all. He didn't have to wash you from your past sins and make you ready for that. He didn't have to plant the incorruptible seed of the Word of God in your heart. He didn't have to do anything to prepare you to be a sanctuary in the initial sense, but he's preparing us right now to be the right kind of sanctuary, as I said, by doing things in our lives so that we'll always be the right kind of sanctuary. So his spirit can live and abide in us forever. We want his spirit to never leave us, don't we? We want to always have his spirit alive in us. If we do, we're never going to have to worry about eternal death and eternal destruction if his spirit is living in us. But in order for his spirit to remain in us, we're going to have to be the kind of sanctuary that it is willing to remain in. Which means he has to prepare us the first time for his spirit to come in or into us. But then he's got to prepare us for his spirit to remain in us. Which means he's got to keep taking things out of us till his spirit is completely comfortable there, so to speak. I mean, that poetically. But part of that is getting rid of some of the things that could cause us to go backwards. Cause us to backslide, as the scripture calls it. That just means if you're moving forward in a certain direction to slip back. You know, we all slip back. It's the nature of life. There's going to be times, there's going to be challenges that'll cause you to slide back in your spirit. Maybe you lose your temper. Don't do it if you can prevent it or if you're at all able to control yourself. But it might cause you to lose your temper, lose your patience, maybe lose your equilibrium or something emotionally or otherwise because something affected you that caused you to slide back. You were at a certain place. You can slide back in all kinds of different things in your spiritual walk with the Lord. But as soon as you start sliding, don't just watch it happen, you know. Brother Bishop was talking about pulling in to work the other day here right before service, and his car just kept moving because he hit some ice, apparently. Sometimes all you can do is sit there and let it happen and see what happens next, you know. There's no way to get out of the slide. Sometimes, depending on how you turn your wheel, you can turn out of the slide. But you almost have to turn your wheel, strangely enough, into the slide to get out of the slide. Sometimes, and I'm going to spiritualize this, you have to learn the spiritual lesson that's packaged up inside of the problem you're dealing with before you'll be able to get out of the problem. You understand that? 
You say, well, this is a problem. This is a bad thing. The way I'm feeling, the way I'm thinking, the process I'm going through. But until you learn the spiritual lesson that's packaged inside the problem, you may never get out. You've got to turn into the slide. Lord, teach me what you want me to learn. If I've got to run to the wall or whatever, let me learn what I need to learn. So going back to this bridges issue, Elisha burned the tools that would have allowed him to keep plowing that ground. I know he loved his parents. I don't know what all family he might have, but I know he loved his community that he was a part of. It's certain that he had a wonderful spirit, was a good man of God. But he knew that God had called him, and it required some things to be removed. He didn't burn every oxen. That would have been a terrible thing to do to the family, wouldn't it? Kill all the oxen and sacrifice them and burn them. What in the world? That was the oxen they used to plow their field. They needed to keep plowing the field. They might need some of them even for food at some point. But Elisha had to do what was necessary for him to do, for him to do his calling in that case. And that particular bridge, the ability for him to go back with his tools and to keep working in that field, he had to get rid of that temptation. That temptation had to be ended. And it was. And that man followed faithfully to the end of his life. And as you know, I've talked about Elisha many times. We've never gone through a detailed Bible study on him, and we never went through the whole life of Elijah. That'd be something else that'd be interesting to finish one of these times. We went through 1 Kings 17 and 18 a while back, and we never went through the rest. But there are some powerful and beautiful lessons in their lives. But if you study the life of Elisha, as you know, I always talk about it in the context of the resurrection. He really did have a double portion. God really blessed that young man for making the choices that he did to follow all the way to the end, not to turn back. And he didn't turn back, even when Elijah, like Naomi, kind of inferred, you can go ahead and you don't have to follow me all day today. I got things to take care of. He knew better. He wanted to follow to the very end. And he did. And Elisha certainly received a double portion. All you have to do is study and put them side by side, the life of Elijah and the life of Elisha. And you will find out that Elisha did almost exactly twice of everything that his mentor did in terms of certain types of miracles or the number of miracles. And you know the example, you probably heard me say it a hundred times, but I'll say it anyway because I think it's so significant. Even raising someone from the dead, both of them raised a little boy from the dead. Isn't it precious how much God loves children? You realize the very first people in the entire scripture that received a resurrection were children? That should tell you a little bit of something. Do you realize that probably half, if not a third of the people that Jesus resurrected were children based on reading between the lines? Little girl, little boy. Tells you what God thinks of children, doesn't it? And here Elijah raised the little boy from the dead whose mother was a very faithful woman of God. You want to see a good reason, parents and grandparents, to be faithful to God even when it really costs you something? God may apply mercy to your children. If you sacrifice greatly for God, God may apply mercy for your children that will reach them in ways you could never do yourself. That mother only had enough food and oil left for her to feed herself and her child, perhaps, and maybe not fully even herself. She was going to give it to the child. Just enough to make one last meal. Now, what would you do as a parent? If I was a single parent using my youngest child since he's still, he won't appreciate this, but borderline baby, still borderline being a baby, still not out of the toddler phase. He doesn't appreciate that. He thinks he's a man, I think, but he's a young man, but he's still borderline baby. I cannot imagine if I had enough for one last meal and I knew there isn't any more coming. This is it. Our parental instincts kick in and there's something incredible about parental instincts. They're stronger even than survival instincts. That should tell you something about the God we serve. I want you to think about that for a second. 
God created us, certainly, after the fall, it's certainly true, with a survival instinct that causes you to go into survival mode. And very often, that overrides everything else, unless it's an incredible act of bravery or courage. But it is astonishing how often parents, when they go into their parental protection mode, it will override their own personal survival instinct. They will give themselves for their children. And it looks like this precious woman was getting ready to do that very thing, to make one last meal for her child and to lay down and die. But God had something else in mind for that precious family. And he sent a man of God to them who asked them probably the last thing they wanted to do Will you give up the one thing that might keep your child alive? This is the one thing left to give your child a little bit more life, this meal. Will you give it to me? What an incredible thing to ask someone to do. This woman must have had an incredible amount of faith in God that it was strong enough to override her own survival instinct as well as a higher instinct, her own parental protective instinct. But I'm going to tell you what, the sacrifice she made for God provided not only food for her children and her her child, in this case, and her, essentially it looks like for the rest of her days. But you know what else it did? It guaranteed what was going to happen later in her life when that little child lost his life. And Elijah went in there and stretched his body out over that child and prayed to the holy God of heaven, will you please cover this child? And the breath came back into the body of that child and raised him from the dead. The very first resurrection in the whole Bible was the product of a faithful mother choosing God over every other thing that she bought a resurrection for her child. My Lord, isn't that precious? Shows you what faithfulness will do. So I have no idea why I said all that here today. Talking about being in contrast to Simon's motive. Yes. Simon wanted to pay a price. That's a good point, Brother Cosey. He was willing to pay a price, but it wasn't a personal price. He was willing to pay some money so he'd get something personally. That wasn't going to work. Those precious Samaritans, Simon doesn't look like he was one of them unless he really straightened up later. Got filled with the Holy Ghost through that process of what was involved in that, the laying on of hands of Peter and John. So all these things are interesting subjects, aren't they? Looking at what it means to be under God's covering. That's part of what laying on of hands represents. Somebody already under God's covering, putting their hand over you. You know, when someone puts their hand over you, they don't even have to physically touch you. When they put their hand over you, extend it over you, you know what really they're doing? They're extending their covering over you. If their covering is the covering of God, then God's covering gets extended over you. I'll show you why that means what it means. You go all the way back. Brother Kosa mentioned that Abraham was one of the examples. And Isaac and Jacob and others that laid their hands on their children. Do you know what they were doing when they were laying their hands on their children? God had given them promises. God had said, I'm going to do such and such for you. I'm going to do such and such for your line. When Abraham laid his hand on Isaac and Isaac laid his hand on Jacob and he laid his hand on Esau too, though he didn't do it in the order he might have wanted to. When he laid his hand on his sons, you know what he was praying? God, you made a promise to me and you've kept your promise. I am a living example of your promise. Now, will you take the promise that's resting on me and pass it to the next generation when I'm gone? When I'm gone, will you let this promise fall on them like you told me you would? No, of course, God was going to do that, but it was the Father's way of passing that blessing on to the children, to lay his hands on those children and say, the covering God has covered me with, I want that covering to extend, just like me extending out my arm if I would touch someone's head or put my hand out towards them, I want that covering to extend to you. 
That's why I said you have to be careful. If someone's laying hands on you, you better not let somebody lay hands on you who doesn't have the authority to do it because whatever covering they're extending to you might not be the right covering. I don't want some spiritually polluted individual laying hands on me, physically or spiritually. I said spiritually, and if you didn't get that earlier, what I mean by spiritually is sometimes you can lay hands on people, not just by your physical arm raising up or your physical hand touching their forehead or shoulder or whatever you might lay hands on. You can lay hands on them through your favor of them, through putting your blessing on them, even without touching them. You can say, this is going to be my heir, so to speak. You don't even have to touch them. You can just make it clear, this is the heir. I've seen that happen, and we don't have that problem in this assembly, but I've seen that happen in churches where somebody put their hands on somebody that probably should not have been the next person to pastor that church, and they caused damage in the church because the minister who was there, who might have been a good, godly man, put his hands on them by putting a lot of favor on them, and you should if it's somebody God's using, but put a lot of favor on them. I've seen ministers do this with men and a minister that I was aware of who did this very thing. He was absolutely determined, so-and-so in my church, who was probably the one who was most faithful to him in a lot of ways, is going to be the next pastor of this church. And he announced it. He announced it to the church. He announced it to the ministers. I found out later, which apparently hasn't turned his mind on what he's done, but I found out later that man wasn't even sure he was called in the ministry. Never has ever felt God tell him that he was called to the ministry. He was just going along with what his pastor told him. I want you to be the next pastor. I wouldn't want to be the pastor of this church if God hadn't called me here, and you certainly shouldn't want me to be. And whoever follows me in the ministry and wherever places I'm working, I certainly don't want them there if they don't even feel called to be in the ministry. Amen? Why would someone want them to be? Why would they want to be? The ministry is a dangerous job, saints. It's a very, very difficult job. If you're doing it right, it is. If you're doing it wrong, it might be the easiest job in the world. If you're doing it right, it's the hardest job that you could ever have. It's the most heartbreaking job. The ministry, if you're doing it right, is stressful. If you love people that are suffering, you're going to be anxious about that. I don't mean anxious that you're not confident in God, but we all feel anxiety over people suffering, even if we know God can heal them. It doesn't mean we're any less confident in God. I feel anxiety when you feel anxiety. I feel stress when you feel stress. When I know you're feeling stress, when I know you're facing challenges, whether emotional or physical, surgeries and fearful conditions you got to deal with, and sometimes just heartbreaking things that are part of God's process, I feel it with you if I'm aware of it. And I want you to make me aware of it. You don't have to tell me all your personal problems or anything. I'm not asking you to do that. But I don't want you to suffer alone either. If you want somebody to cry with you, I'll cry with you. If you want somebody to pray for you, I'll pray for you. And if you are willing to tell me what to pray for, I might have a little more knowledge on how to pray. So I'm always available to you for that. It doesn't increase my stress. It's just always there because of the love that I have for God's people and God's work. I have stress related to the work of the body of Christ, looking at the overall body and where its direction is going. That's just part of the job. And that's why it's wise, brethren. All of you in this church have been this way. Pay attention to somebody that's called of God if you know they're a man of God. If you can be close with them and watch how they handle things and watch what they're dealing with and become familiar with the work of the ministry, do it. Study the ministry. Brother Ross used to say this. I don't know if it was his catchphrase, but I remember hearing him say it many times. He used to say, study for the ministry. He goes, one of the best ways you could study for the ministry is to study the ministry. He says, there's no better way to study for the ministry if you feel called than to study the ministry. 
By that, what he meant was, watch somebody who's truly a minister, not somebody that's doing it wrong. You might want to watch that too. You might learn what not to do. But study the ministry. How does the ministry work? What does the ministry do? What spirit do you feel from the ministry? What kind of methods do they use? They may not be the exact methods you use, brethren, if you're working in the ministry. You may not use my exact methods. You don't have to pattern your voice tone after mine or inflections. I've seen people, and I imagine it's really a compliment to their pastor. But I can think of a couple people who, if you didn't see their face, you might think it was their pastor talking. They talk exactly like them. Their gestures are just like them. If you were off in a distance, you'd think, that's brother so-and-so. It's not him. It's one of the men that sat under him for years. There's nothing wrong with picking up those things, but that isn't the goal. The goal is not to mimic somebody, unless it's just the fact that you've been around them so much that you may not even consciously be doing it. But the goal is to take on the good qualities that they have, the good methods that they have. Watch how they handle conditions. And this is going to sound strange, but pay attention to the weight they're under, because if you feel called to the ministry, you're going to have to bear that kind of weight. You're going to need to know what it feels like, what it looks like. You're going to need to have sympathy and empathy for the pressures and the conditions that somebody is under. This doesn't just apply to the ministry, those saints. This applies to every single person in the church. We ought to be careful to watch other people in the church. Somebody needs to be lifted up. You can apply that to the ministry. That's certainly true, but I'm not asking you to do anything to lift me up unless you feel the Lord puts it on your heart. But you can see that in the examples of the two that lifted up Moses' arms. And her lifted up Moses' arms. You can see what they were doing. They realized Moses is getting tired. Do you know how they knew that? Moses had his hands up in the air over Israel long enough for that battle to be won. And they were close enough and familiar enough with Moses to see probably his arms starting to shake a little bit, or maybe it's drooping once in a while. Moses is going to need our help. And they came in there and got under his arms. This is an astonishingly humble thing. They didn't try to take his place and push him out of the way and say, well, lift up our arms. Nothing would have happened. He was the one that was doing that job at that time. They got in and put their shoulders, I think, probably under his shoulder to hold his arms up, to keep his arms up. Isn't that a precious example of support and humility as well? He didn't say, well, Moses, it's time for us to do the job. It was still time for Moses to do that job. But that's true not just of the ministry, that's true of the people. If you see somebody who's flagging, you see somebody whose knees are buckling, you see somebody that's carrying more weight emotionally or physically than they can take, and you can tell they can't take it. You can see their spirit lowering or their back bowing down. Get in there and help them up. That's our responsibility as our brother's keeper. Cain said, am I my brother's keeper? We are our brother's keeper, our sister's keeper. It's our responsibility to watch out for one another, not just the ministry. Thank you for doing that and the precious things you do in so many different ways. I'm so thankful for your generous gifts and your generous words. Words sometimes are just as precious as any gift someone could give. Someone tells you something that lifts you up. That can go on longer than a nice gift card or something they give you. But all those things that you all do for us, I could never thank you enough for the things you do. I've never felt worthy of the love that you give us, which is a good thing because it makes me keep trying to be worthy of it. And that's my job. Keeps me doing my job as long as I recognize that I don't feel worthy enough of your love. Makes me want to be worthy of it. And that's how we all should be of one another. Where was I going, brethren? Was I done talking? I was going towards taking an offering? I didn't even know I was doing that, Kevin, if that was you back there. (laughs) I love you, Kevin. He has certainly lifted up my hands more times than any of you could possibly know.
He was lifting up my hands when we first started coming down here. There's times we drove down here and talking about some of the bad weather you've all been driving in. There's times we drove down here that I should have just called off service. I don't know what I was thinking. It was just as bad in Akron and Green where I lived. There was probably four or five inches of snow. The roads hadn't been cleared. There was ice all over the sidewalks where I was living in Green. And I knew it was just as bad in Mansfield. I'd drive down here and Kevin and I would get out there. Nobody knew we were doing this. And I don't know, there wasn't isn't a lot of you sitting here now as much as has changed through the years that were there when I was coming down on Thursday nights. We'd come down a Thursday night, Kevin and I would get out there with shovels and clear the walk and salt it down, in part because we felt so bad that I hadn't called off surface and it was so bad out there. But these folks were coming out, then you did. You were so, so faithful. Those of you that are still here that were there back now almost 16 years ago when we started coming down and so faithful to come out no matter how bad the weather. I looked at the conditions today and they don't look too terrible out, but I was getting so many calls of people that were out of town or sick that I thought I probably should have called off today, but I'm glad I didn't. Glad I felt what I felt here so far today. While I'm talking, I felt it and I hope you felt what I'm feeling. And while I was listening to this precious music here today, I felt it. While I was talking to the Lord in my own heart, I felt it. Wouldn't have wanted to have missed it. So pay attention to what God's doing in the lives of other people where you can help them or in the lives of other people where they might be a good example to you. There's a reason that some of us go through certain problems that may seem very heartbreaking. The fact of the matter is, once you go through a problem that's very heartbreaking and you make it through that problem, you will have a key that will help other people that are going to have to go through similar problems that follow on behind you. I've watched that happen generationally so many times where I can hear people saying, I've been there. I know what you're going through. I've gone through it, or maybe I'm still going through it. And that's part of the advantage that we have in our suffering is that if you don't think of it as an advantage, you won't see this, but is that it will give us some strengths in our life that can help us with other people who are going to face similar things in the future. We might have been faced with great challenge and difficulty, but we held our integrity. We went to the very end. That's the goal, to make it to the very end, like Elisha, like all these other precious individuals that would not be turned back. They would not be dissuaded. They had to go through some very difficult processes, but they did not turn back. Praise his holy name.